From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, YAG vitriolysis for floaters. Over YAG vitriolysis, the power is turned up a little bit and is non-linear to roughly 5 to 7 millijoules. At that level, you're actually vaporizing and more so than fractionating. First this. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol, and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning, and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld cool. AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. How many times has a patient asked you, isn't there something that you can do about my floaters? What do you answer? Do you give a simple no? Do you counsel them that they will adapt to the floaters over time? Do you discuss visually disabling floaters and the possibility of surgical therapy? If you're like me, you've heard of YAG vitriolysis for floaters, but perhaps like me, you've had some apprehensions about delivering energy close to the retina. The procedure is certainly not common in the United States, and so I'm delighted to have Chirag Shah as my guest to discuss a recent prospective randomized clinical trial of YAG vitriolysis for floaters. From a histopathological standpoint, what are floaters and what histopathologically is a Weiss's ring? I mean, I, I know what it looks like, but what what actually is it? The, a, a Weiss ring is a glial tissue that for uh, the majority of one's life is attached to their optic nerve. So it's within their blind spot. And then when they're older, uh, usually somewhere between 50 and uh, 70 years of age, They'll develop posterior vitreous detachment, and then the white ring will be free-floating, tethered to the hyloid within the vitreous cavity. And that's when it can sometimes be symptomatic, because it's no longer hidden in front of the blind spot. Why is it that some vitreous opacities cause symptomatic floaters, even when they seem mild uh, at, the, at the slit lamp? And why other conditions that are impressive-looking, like asteroid hylosis, are relatively asymptomatic? Your former question is is extremely interesting because, uh, as as you've probably noticed, there are some patients that have huge floaters and huge white rings and have no symptoms, and there's others that barely have any floaters, and, and they're hard for the observer to see, and they have significant symptoms. I think uh, symptoms are, are complex. I think uh, much of it has to do with the individual patient. There's some patients that are not bothered uh, even with significant 
um, objective floaters and, and they have no symptoms. Um, so I, th- I think that, and then this, our study has actually shown that there is a, there can be a big disconnect between the objective appearance of floaters and, and individual patients' symptoms. Uh, asteroid hyalosis is a very interesting question because uh, asteroid typically is not symptomatic and it has to do with Snell's law, which is something we probably learned back in uh, residency where uh, due to the refractive index of a, a particle, um, if it's similar to vitreous, such as asteroid hyalosis, then the asteroid is very um, prominent for the observer because we're looking through air, but it's not that prominent for the patient because of Snell's law and the index of refraction, uh, index of diffraction, I believe, um, against the vitreous. How does YAG vitreolysis work? So YAG is a pretty hot laser. Uh, uh, I believe it gets to approximately 3,000 degrees centigrade. And uh, what it can do is it can actually vaporize tissue. And so so during YAG vitreolysis, the surgeon focuses the YAG laser onto the vitreous opacities and vaporizes them. And, And what the surgeon will see and what the patient will see is solid tissue turning into small gas bubbles. It kind of looks like champagne bubbles. And they float up in the vitreous, and from a patient's perspective, they they drift down. And eventually, within a day or two, these gas bubbles are resorbed from the eye. But that's how one can vaporize floaters with the vitreolysis. There is a certain degree of fractionation in addition to vaporization. So although much of the mass will be vaporized, there will be some degree of fractionating the larger floater into smaller, uh, hopefully less bothersome floaters. This was my question when I um, when when I first heard of this this procedure. When we talk about YAG capsulotomy, we're using the YAG to vaporize or to turn to a to a to a plasma, a little tiny 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 area, and then we're employing the shock wave to to tear the the posterior capsule. And it just struck me. That if we if we are doing fractionation here, if we are creating shock waves, we're doing it mighty close to the retina. But that's not actually what's going on, right? Right. So what's interesting with the power of YAG laser is that the power uh, or the cone of power actually comes back to the observer. So you're actually more likely to hit the posterior capsule uh, than hitting the retina, depending on where you're working. So there's there's more wiggle room posteriorly than there is anteriorly when you're focusing your your YAG laser. Uh, and 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 you're right. You're you're not you know, at the lower powers that you use for the YAG capsulotomy. You are doing more fractionation and less vaporization. But for YAG vitrolysis, the power is turned up a little bit and it's nonlinear. It's turned up a little bit to roughly five to seven joules, uh, millijoules rather, and uh, that at that level you're actually vaporizing and more so than fractionating. Chirag, huh. what question did your study seek to answer? This was so you know this is an interesting question. So uh, several years ago, I was asked to give a lecture uh, to a group of optometrists about floaters, and I was. Uh, reluctant because I wanted to talk about real retinal disease such as macular generation and diabetic retinopathy, retinal detachment. And so in the process of putting this lecture together, I realized that there is really no good data out there about YAG vitrolysis. So 
I figured since we have the machinery to perform clinical trials, which is something we do uh, regularly, uh, why don't we do a clinical trial for Yagvitrolysis and, and do a relatively small pilot study to see if there's any credence to this procedure that a lot of doctors, or at least a handful of doctors around the country and around the world are doing uh, sort of off-label. Off and so we wanted to look and see if Yagvitrolysis um, had any benefit compared to placebo laser, and also, uh, probably even more importantly, see what the safety profile was to see if there was any big um, adverse events or uh, big safety signals that popped up during our study. To that extent, what, what was the design of your study? This was a randomized control trial where we uh, treated patients in a two-to-one ratio with Yagvitrolysis versus sham laser. And what's interesting is the sham laser had the power turned all the way down. There was a filter on the contact lens that you place onto the surface of the patient's eye. And so no energy was getting into the patient's eye, but they heard the clicks and they saw the lights. And so it was actually a, a relatively realistic uh, sham laser. Uh, and so we, we randomized folks and followed them for six months with uh, five um, subjective outcome measures and one objective outcome measure. The five subjective outcome measures were looking at um, various measures of uh, subjective improvement or worsening. Uh, we also looked at the VFQ25 uh, standardized questionnaire. And then we, we looked at an objective uh, grading of, of color photography by a mass grader. And then, of course, we looked at any adverse effects. And then we followed these patients closely for six months. And uh, what we found was that there was... Um, evidence of efficacy compared to placebo. So even though there was a small placebo uh, response uh, or a placebo effect of about 9% improvement on average, it, it was much lower than the, the average 53% improvement in symptoms that the YAG group experienced at six months. Troy, can I get you to walk me through a typical procedure? I, I've, I've read papers on this, this topic. Uh, I've seen videos uh, but I've 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 never actually seen the procedure being done. It's a great question. It's actually not that dissimilar from doing YAG capsulotomy or uh, even YAG PI, although it might be a little bit longer than YAG PI. But effectively, you put in a drop of preparacaine or tetracaine or other numbing drop on the surface of the patient's eye. They put their chin in a slit lamp that is. Uh, connected to the YAG laser machine. You you place a contact lens on the surface of their eye, similar to how you, you may do YAG capsulotomy or YAG perfluoridotomy. Um, this contact lens is designed to focus in the mid-vitreous cavity. It's, uh, it's, it's usually 20 mil, 21 millimeter uh, 21 millimeter lens. And then what you do is you, you line up your aiming beams onto the you know, in the case of the study, onto the Weiss ring, um, and then you fire. And, and what I did was I started at a low power and then titrated up until I saw plasma formation. In the in the, in the early stages, when I was a little gun shy, I kept my, my power pretty low, and I think I was fractionating more than I was vaporizing. But then as I got more comfortable, I would uh, increase the, the power until I got proper plasma formation. And uh, what's interesting is that really for the first time in my career is that you're hitting something in three dimensions. Uh, you're not applying laser retinopexy to the retina. You're not causing a, 
uh, a, a hole in the iris or, or a hole in the posterior capsule. You're hitting something that moves in three dimensions. So it's actually kind of like a very fun video game uh, when you're when you're striking the the white ring because it will move, and then you have to make adjustments and line up each shot very carefully because you don't want any shots to go astray. Uh, certainly not too posterior, too anterior. Um, and then you continue to treat the the uh, the floaters and the vitreous opacities until they've all been vaporized, or, or, and 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 you've done as good of a job as you think you can do, and then then it's over. Uh, on average, it would take somewhere between ten and uh, I guess upwards of twenty minutes. Uh, as I got more experience towards the end of the study, it was it was closer to ten minutes, and in some cases, it was. Uh, perhaps just under 10 minutes, but I would say on average probably 10 to 15 minutes once I had some experience. How how technically challenging is is treatment? And I, I specifically mean two things. Number one, what was the learning curve? And number two, uh, there are guidelines um, for safety as far as distance to the retina and distance to the posterior capsule uh, that it's safe to to treat. And those margins are given in, in millimeters, but it was unclear to me how you can actually judge what your distance is to the retina or to the, the, the posterior capsule when you're treating. So we selectively chose patients who had symptomatic Weiss ring floaters. And interestingly, you can see a Weiss ring on B-scan ultrasonography, which we did in all patients prior to enrolling them in the study and determining if they're eligible. And for us, our parameters were ha- was to have a three millimeter cushion between the Weiss ring and the retina and a five millimeter cushion between the Weiss ring and the posterior capsule in phacic patients and pseudophagic patients, it didn't really matter uh, how, how close it was to the posterior capsule. Um, and, and interestingly, if you're treating a Weiss ring, in every case when someone actually had a PVD, and there were some patients that we screened and excluded because they didn't have a PVD, but in every patient that had a PVD, the Weiss ring fell within that parameter, you know, five millimeters from the posterior capsule, three millimeters from the retina. When you're, when you're, Within the eye and you're working, um, in the beginning, I, I, you're, you're right, it can sometimes be hard to tell where you are. Um, I would encourage patients who, or, or providers rather who are just starting out to work first with pseudophagic patients so you don't have to worry about hitting the lens, which uh, can be a very serious uh, complication. If when you're looking in, if the optic nerve in the retina is out of focus, then you know you're you're far enough away. And if, if the mid-vitreous cavity is in focus, what's interesting is when you place these vitreous-specific contact lenses on the surface of the eye, you see the vitreous in a way that you never have seen before. Even during vitrectomy surgery, uh, you don't see the vitreous quite like you do with with these kind of mid-vitreous contact lenses. So you really get an appreciation for all the the fine uh, collagen fibers and floaters that are that are within the vitreous. And in the case of this study, I kind of ignored the little stuff and just went for the big uh, beefy Weiss rings. Uh, and making sure that the the retina posterior to it was out of focus, so I never got too close to the retina. Truck, what is the endpoint of of treatment? How how do you know when you're done? You know, that's a fantastic question, and I think each provider has a different definition of when they're done. Uh, 
which is why it was important for this study that I was the only person treating, so I kind of had the same definition. But basically, you know, I think you get to a point, just like with most procedures, you get to a point where there's diminishing returns. And so I, it was really a judgment call. I, I was done when uh, when I saw all the visible big uh, glial tissue floaters gone and vaporized. Um, and if there was a couple little particles left, you know, it can, it, the smaller the piece is, the harder it is to hit it, especially if, if there's some movement there. Um, and so I, I would just call it quits uh, if, I, if I felt like I debulked uh, all or, or, or mostly all of the prominent widescreen floater. What's interesting is in the real world, providers are offering patients second, third, and sometimes fourth and fifth treatments to kind of clean up any residual floaters. And, and that our study wasn't designed in such a matter because if I if I treated a patient with sham laser multiple times, they would probably figure out that they were in the sham group. And so we just allowed one treatment to, to prevent unmasking. But I think in the real world, patients likely will will benefit from a, a you know two or three depending on on the on the patient and on the floaters. The, the one thing to also remember is because you create all these these uh, plasma, this plasma and these gas bubbles that sometimes the view can start to get murky when you're 15, 20 minutes into a session. And, and sometimes it's better just to stop and possibly come back, you know, a, a couple of days later um, once those bubbles have cleared and the view is more clear. And you can also get a feel for if the patient is content or if they, if they need more treatment. Chuck, we, we touched on the results on 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 the on the findings, but can I get you to describe them in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so um, there are many many findings uh, in the study. I think the most important is is uh, in thirty six patients that were treated. So I I say thirty six because I, it is a small number of patients that were treated. There weren't any significant um, adverse effects, meaning there was no elevated intraocular pressure. There was no retinal tear, retinal detachment, cataract formation, or retinal damage. In, in one patient, after treating their white ring, I was working on some more anterior floaters, and I pitted an intraocular lens, similar to what you, you might see during a YAG um, capsulotomy. There was no uh, clinical or visual significance, I should say, to the pitting of the IOL. Um, so so safety-wise, there weren't any you know, big safety signals. And, and keep in mind, we need much larger and uh, studies of longer duration to really uh, make a comment on on the true risk of this procedure. But at least in the small pilot study, there are no big signals. How far post-operatively did, did you follow them? When we say that there were no... Six months. Uh, six months. Okay, good. So patients were seen, uh, so immediately, so at 30 minutes after the procedure, we checked their intraocular pressure. We saw them at one week, one month, three months, and six months. And each time they had uh, a, a depressed, dilated fundus examination, uh, intraocular pressure, visual acuity, you know, a, a full history to see if they had any symptoms. And then at six months, we repeated the OCT and the color photography to look for any changes there. You mentioned that, that there was some, some pitting, I think just some, some peripheral pitting uh, of an mm-hmm. intraocular lens during the treatment of anterior floaters. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious, my, my, my understanding from an optic standpoint was that anterior floaters, for the most part, don't don't cause symptoms. I'm just curious what the rationale was um, for for treating them. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I I'm, I, I was done treating the white ring, and so um, I thought I would just while I was in there just clean up some of the other floaters that were there. You know, what's interesting is that 
I have learned, you know, as a retinal surgeon, I probably should have known this, but I've learned that there are multiple different kinds of floaters, uh, and, and some authors have characterized the different types. But there's one type of floater which I've learned is not that amenable to um, Yag vitrolysis treatment, uh, but tends to be very symptomatic, and that is a, an anterior inferior floater uh, that 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 Dr. Karafkoff calls a floater duet. So it's like these fluffy caterpillar floaters that we see that are very, very anterior that tend to rest in the anterior inferior vitreous cavity. And then when patients move their eye, it kind of drifts across their vision. And, and that's, that's an example of an anterior floater that tends to be very, very symptomatic, uh, but also not that um, amenable, at least in my limited experience, to YAG vitreolysis. Uh, and so I agree with you that some floaters are not some floaters, some anterior floaters are not that symptomatic, but some are. Uh, but mostly in this patient, this was early on in the treatment uh, when I was just starting and I was doing a pseudophagy patient. It was mostly just to see, you know, how much I could do. <laughs> I was sort of, I was sort of learning. I was just sort of learning and trying to. And this is where it kind of sort of you, you kind of develop judgment. You sort of develop a feel for how much is enough. But just like when you're peeling macular puckers and internal limiting membrane, uh, you know how much do you peel? And it's really a judgment call that I think becomes honed uh, with experience. And so this, that pitting of the IOL was, was a, a rookie error, uh, but it was a good lesson in terms of me learning how anterior I can work uh, safely. And it, it didn't create anything that was symptomatic for the patient anyway. Your Not results cer- certainly look promising. Where does YAG vitreolysis fit in, into your practice? And by extension, by your your experience of results that are positive with adverse events that are few, how mild can floaters be that you would still be willing to treat them? Let me answer the first question first. So so I'm not doing yak vitrolysis. I, I don't have any plans of doing yak vitrolysis. Um, uh, the, the reason is uh, I'm a retinal surgeon and also someone who does a lot of clinical trials. And so I did it because I thought it was a very interesting question that needed to be answered. And And also what's really uh, humbling for me is that many centers around the, the world are replicating our protocol. And, and now, you know, over the next few years, we're going to have more data. And that's really where we are right now in 2017. We need more data. This was the first uh, randomized prospective uh, control trial. It was a pilot study with very small numbers. It was encouraging. Uh, because of the results of this study, it means that um, – we should pursue it further with larger uh, studies, uh, preferably with a little bit longer follow-up. And that's exactly what's happening now around the world. And so we'll have more and more data, I think, in coming years uh, after the publication of, of this study. And, and who knows, maybe it will play a role in, in my practice in the future. At the moment, I'm uh, very interested in, in high pathology uh, retina cases like PVR and tractional diabetic retinopathy from uncontrolled diabetes and macular generation, et cetera. And so, so at the moment, uh, the, uh, floaters have uh, don't have too much of a role in, in my particular practice. And also one thing I will mention is that it's a very different patient population. So as a retinal surgeon, I'm accustomed to patients coming to me on, on one of the worst days of their life, being blinded by macular generation, vein occlusion, retinal detachment, et cetera. And I am actively trying to reverse blindness. And and uh, the floater population is a, is a very different population for a retinal surgeon in the sense that you're coming, to, someone comes to you with 20-20 vision, 
who's annoyed and you try to make them less annoyed. And, and so in some ways, it's sort of the refractive surgery of retina. And so uh, at least for my practice, it, it, it doesn't fit in, into my, you know, sort of pathology heavy practice. But I think for others, I think it could fit nicely. Uh, right now, I think that we still have more work to do uh, to determine which floater types are amenable to lysis and which are not. You know, I cherry-picked uh, Y-string floaters because I felt that they would probably be the best uh, candidates for lysis, but certainly other floater types could be. Uh, to the second part of your question, you know, what's the threshold for treating floaters? I, I really don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm very data-driven and uh, uh, evidence-driven, and, and I think that and I hope that we'll have studies uh, in the future looking at all floater types to try to help us determine which patients uh, can be uh, well served by agvitrolysis and which should be observed and which uh, you know should consider vitrectomy as an option. When I was asked to give this talk years ago, I thought agvitrolysis was voodoo medicine, and I didn't think there was any credibility to it, um, mostly because people were doing it without data and uh, without evidence, and um, some practices were charging a lot of money for it. Uh, now, having done the clinical trial, I think that there is something to it, and I think there is some value to it. I don't think it's right for every patient, uh, and I, I say that because of the 36 patients that I treated, even though the average improvement was 53% and the, the median improvement was about 63%, um, there was a pretty broad range of improvement. You know, some patients had 100% improvement. Some patients had a 0% improvement. And in fact, I looked at those patients that had a 0% improvement, and there was eight of 36 patients said they had no improvement in their symptoms. But then when you look at the objective data, when you look at the, the wide-angle optos color photographs and, and the, the masked grader looked at all of these photos to determine if they were better and worse and how much better and how much worse they were, seven out of eight of those patients who reported no improvement had a significant objective improvement in their floaters. And in fact, when I showed them their before and after floaters pictures, they would say there's no floater left. But symptomatically, they were still terribly bothered. And so that made me realize to your one of the first questions you asked me today that there is so much more to treating floaters than treating floaters. There's a lot of psychology involved in treating floaters. And even though Yagvitrolysis can remove objectively the floater, there might be still a little speck that's left or a little something, a little strand that's left that drives the patient crazy. And that's the part that I think is challenging with Yagvitrolysis and selecting patients who can be pleased. Because in my limited experience, I found that there there is you know, a percentage of patients, about 22% of patients in my hands in our study that were not pleased uh, with the results of the study, even though objectively their floater is gone. So that's why I think a lot more work needs to be done uh, to try to determine which patients can benefit, not just objectively, but also subjectively. Trug, really, really, really interesting stuff. I want to thank you very much uh, for your generosity with your with your time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's 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 so fun talking about this topic and and, and others, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Chirag Shah is assistant professor at the Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts. His paper, Yag Laser Vitreolysis versus Sham Yag Vitreolysis for Symptomatic Floaters, 
a randomized clinical trial, appears in the September 2017 issue of JAMA Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Shah or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.